Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. I'm here with Kevin Fitzpatrick and Jacinda Davis to discuss episode 14 of our series in the cases of Kane Story and Lee Clark. In this episode, we finally heard from Coroner Craig Burns and got some more answers about why, in this case, there was never an autopsy done, or at least officially, there was never an autopsy done. Yeah, I mean, I think it was in episode one or two when we spoke to um, Mark Corbin, who had been a police officer with the Floyd County Police Department. And he said, I think Craig Burns will talk to you guys. You should give it a try. And I remember thinking, there's no way. <laughs> so, Susan, when you called to say that he actually called you back, I, I was shocked. I didn't see that coming. My first thought when I answered the phone and it was Craig Burns was Mark Corbin was right. <laughs> I was I was stunned that he called you. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it, particularly after everything that I had heard in Rome. So I was stunned that he called you, but maybe he wanted to know what just what you were thinking. When I first began working on this case, from the start, obviously, it made no sense that there was no autopsy done. Like just in any any case, anywhere in the world where there's a murder, you would assume there'd be an autopsy. So that always seemed weird, but the more we investigated and the more we learned about Craig Burns, it became even stranger because nothing we knew added up. One, there should have been an autopsy. And two, why on earth would Craig Burns not do an autopsy when he had every reason in the world to do it? Well, and three, because when we talked to Amanda and Kenneth, Aunt Melody and Uncle Michael, they all truly believed that there had been an autopsy. And the first time, I forget who we spoke to first, the first time I heard that, you know, you kind of just assume it was an error. After 25 years, memories can be changed. Things are not always literally accurate. And I was willing to believe that the family was misremembering that or they had seen the photos of Brian with the rod through his head and thought it was from an autopsy. 
But the more we talk to the family, they're all on the same page. They're like, yeah, there's an autopsy done. And we're like, no, no, there wasn't. There's this recurring theme in this story where it constantly takes these bizarre terms that are almost beyond imagination, you know, with Charlie and, and Angela Bruce and all of these things. And for this turn to happen, for there to be a question about the coroner and if he was actually conducting autopsies or if he was charging people for money. And it was just another bizarre turn that you just sort of pause and say, that just can't be possible. This all can't be happening in one story. But sure enough, it is. And then he calls you. Wrongful convictions never happen in isolation. They're always products of the system they're in. And I think for this case to have happened, for Lee and Kane to have convicted under the story that they were sent to prison for life under, it's symptomatic of something much bigger um, but, and something much more wrong overall in Floyd County. But even even you couldn't have imagined that there would be this many bizarre twists. Oh, hell no. I, <laughs> the Craig Burns thing caught me by surprise because I hadn't even it – it wasn't – it was on my radar and that I knew there was an issue with him. But, like, I hadn't dug into it yet because it didn't seem like it was relevant until bit by bit we're like, oh, my gosh, there's something – even darker here about the coroner and lack of autopsy than we even dreamed of when we started. Yeah. And of all of the cases that he has been a part of, it would seem like he would remember this one. And he remembers the exhumation pretty clearly, actually. Um, and yet somehow has zero memory of the what came before it. I, I can't say one way or another, but I do struggle to believe that he has no memory of this determination in this case. Um which again is a common theme for the story. People, people not remembering testifying, not remembering the trial. And I know you've run a, across that before in other stories, Susan. It was something new for me, but uh, it is interesting that you know the testimony that's in question is from people who um, maybe we should be questioning. Yeah, um, and we also mentioned it somewhat in the, the episode. This problem with the coroner isn't limited to Floyd County. The coroner system in Georgia has been subject to problems and abuses since it existed. I was actually looking at some old news articles about it. And there was one from like 1888. And it was like, should we abolish the coroner system? It's outdated and antiquated. Like (laughs) they thought it was like bad idea back then. And we still have it over 100 years later. What else was in the newspaper that day? You know, I didn't look. I usually do. (laughs) I don't think you mentioned that it's also the coroner's job to round up escaped livestock, right? Mississippi has that one. Oh, Mississippi, not Georgia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. In Georgia, the orange uh, of the coroner, as Bob Rowe, the former coroner uh, from Georgia, explained to me, um, it's a little more about checks and balances. And of course, you know, what was it, 100 plus years ago when they developed this, because the sheriff has a ridiculous amount of power as it is, and they could be unchecked. Uh, if they decided to shoot somebody, they could, and then declare him dead and bury him off. So that was the idea, was the you'd have another elected position that is the only one who can say someone died. So it's a checks and balance was the original intent, as I understood it. So they put in the system of checks and balances, but it doesn't seem like it works. I mean, that was back in the day where the coroner, like originally even, the coroner was the only one who could arrest the sheriff. Um, But that's all in the past. Today, when things work well, ideally with the coroner system, the coroner should be working very closely with law enforcement, both the county level and the state level, like GBI. 
so it it shouldn't be this adversarial relationship. It should be working hand in hand, which, according to Craig Burns, was was the case here. Um, he says that this decision not to autopsy Brian Bowling was jointly made with um, Dallas Battle and the whoever the GBI's examiner was at the time. In what scenario would you just not decide to do that? I can't figure out a scenario in which you would say, let's not conduct an autopsy in this case. Especially when you get more money if you do do one. <laughs> and he said to you, his excuse was that maybe it was to um, honor the family's wishes. And that just hit so hard because the family thought he did it. And to use that as an excuse was kind of mind blowing. And then he says it's because of the organ donation. But in the files we got recently from uh, the DA's office, um, talking about some other cases that the coroner was involved in, it describes how LifeLink, which is the organ donation facilitator, it is their policy to do um, autopsies in many cases. So it's obviously not true, but like it is documented in the files that after organ donations, autopsies were done, Craig Burns was involved in them. Like there's no question there that that, that should not have been a, a block to an autopsy. And just so everyone is clear, if they were to exhume Brian's body now and look at the wound in the skull, they could determine if it's a contact wound? Most likely from all the experts we've spoken to, yes, probably yes. Depending, of course, on the condition of the body somewhat, but it, most likely, yes, it should be still something we could determine conclusively now. So, so the potential answer is still out there. It is. Of course, the last time someone tried to file a motion to exhume the body, um, they, that was Kane's story. He was, uh, the court was like, I'm sick of your this stuff. You're not ever filing again in this court. You're barred from ever filing a motion with the court again. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you, have you ever heard anything like that before, Susan? Yes, because sometimes courts get very frustrated with pro se defendants. It's unconstitutional. They can't do it. They shouldn't do it. But their way of dealing with someone filing jail mail, like consider, like just motions and all kinds of stuff over and over again um, is to just block them. And again, not allowed, but also because they're pro se, they can't really challenge it. So they get away with it. And I want to note as well, when this all happened, um, when, when Brian died, uh, Craig Burns was actually the deputy coroner. He was not co uh, county coroner yet. He was elected like two weeks later and took office January 1st, um, the following year. But he told me that as deputy coroner, he still handled 98% of cases. He was still basically functioning as the coroner, even if he wasn't a name. So like the situation was not different from how it was um, when he actually was county coroner. But in terms of how he took office, it was because the, the previous one had retired and asked him to like step in. And something about what he told me about how the previous coroner had operated made me wonder if it led Craig Burns onto the path he ended up on. Mr. Talley owned a funeral home, and it was beneficial to him to co-mingle his coroner work with his funeral home work, the same way that it was for Barry Henderson to co-mingle his funeral work, his funeral home work, with the coroner work. Uh, and see, when I became coroner, I did not have that conflict of interest. Fred had it all those years, and then Barry Henderson had it. I didn't have it, 
and uh, didn't want to have it. I wanted to be above board. So when you say commingle, what do you mean? Uh, that's a hard thing to explain. Uh, if you're the funeral director and the coroner, you've got a conflict of interest. I can see that, yeah. And I didn't have that because I was not a funeral home owner. So the coroner can influence where bodies go, or? Absolutely. Absolutely they can. But this is actually pretty standard. Although coroners come from all walks of life, I was looking at a list of from the 2015, it's like there's hairstylists and farmers, um, retirees. The predominant profession that coroners come from is funeral homes, most likely because of the situation here where coroners, you know, you, you go to a home, there's a body there, you say, don't worry, I'll take care of it. By the way, I can take it to my funeral home. And the family's like, yes, yes, of course, you know, grief stricken and all that. So yeah, it's, it, it is a moneymaker that way for um, funeral directors. But Craig Burns didn't have a funeral home, so there wasn't a way for him to traffic this business into to traffic. Oh, but there was. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, multiple levels of wrongdoing by Craig Burns. But the thing that struck me before we got the files was like, how, how could this be going on without someone realizing it? How, how could this be happening without someone in the county knowing? And one thing that's surprising from the files is that, well, yeah, the county did know because there's an affidavit from the assistant county manager who says that Burns asked him if he could do this. And the affidavit says like, yeah, he came to me and said like, sometimes families have paid to offset costs for my office for, you know, coroner's duties. Can I do this? And the answer he was given by the assistant county manager and like the, the Rome city attorney was, quote, Craig could bill anyone he pleased, but there was no requirement for anyone to pay a bill from the coroner. Which that's just nuts. So basically he's saying, yeah, Craig, go ahead, bill whoever, whatever amount you want. But if they don't pay you, there's nothing you can do about it. And if they do, good for you. Yeah, I mean, it's still illegal. It's still a crime what he was doing, but he, he wasn't doing it in secret. The people in the county had to, some definitely knew, they had to have been aware of it. They might not have known the full details, but it does seem like he wasn't keeping it like some kind of super secret procedure here. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things, and that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life, is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion. And saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof.
Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like, like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. One thing we still don't really know is how this whole investigation kicked off exactly. We have a lot of inconsistent timelines here. Um, and one thing I keep going back to is multiple news articles describe how in January of 98, when Lee's and Kane's trial occurred, that's when this started. That's when the investigation was tipped off and when the Floyd County Police Department learned about illegal practices. There's no record of that in the files we were given. The, the files we were given show that like it was not until like late the next su that summer that the investigation tipped off. Um, to, uh, but it does, to me anyway, seem like the files dance around the origins of the, of the investigation. The record also shows that uh, his misconduct included things like potentially stealing money from the bodies that were in his custody. And there was a few references to cases where it looked like a suicide or cases where it looked like a hospital natural death, where there's, it could potentially be something more. And Craig Burns had gone to the families and suggested that he could reach an alternate outcome if they wanted him to. Like, quote from one of the investigation reports, a telephone conversation with Mr. Burns resulted in him advising the mother that he was ruling her daughter's death a suicide unless she could convince him otherwise. The mother stated that she never had any doubt that her daughter's death was a result of a self-induced overdose, but she thought that Mr. Burns was trying to make more of it. Is there any evidence in the files that you've seen that he was offering? Like, why, why would it be incentive for a family to have their loved one's death be ruled a homicide versus a suicide? Well, in one of the cases involved a possible, or so apparently the, the, the man who died um, had been in bad health for a while and the family didn't doubt he just died of bad health. But Burns was like, do you think the hospital um, could have screwed this up and killed him? Want me to do testing for a fee to find out more? So in that case, potentially if they wanted to bring a suit or I don't know. Malpractice of some sort. Yeah. He was offering for a fee to do testing that could potentially give a different answer. And in the case of the suicide, if it was ruled possible homicide, then maybe it would affect life insurance payout. Yes. And then there was stuff he was doing that's just kind of weird. Like a woman died. She had a young child. Burns told the family, like, want me to test to make sure the purported father is actually the father? And they're like, WTF, we never doubted that. Like, why? <laughs> why is the coroner asking if we need to get a paternity test on our grandchild? 
I mean, part of it could be the more tests he does, the more mm-hmm. he's still. That's that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's the only thing I can imagine uh, for why he'd get involved there. But, you know, my imagination might not be uh, <laughs> wide enough in this context. <laughs> you don't go to those dark, dark places. Susan. I thought I did, but uh, no, not, not enough. for that. <laughs> <laughs> you need me to go to the dark, dark places? <laughs> that's what know. you and I are here for. I don't know. I, I think we all are keeping up going to dark places, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. So what's the uh, result of all of this? Well, we still don't know for sure what happened with the autopsy, if there was one done or not. I initially thought for certain there was never one done. And I have started to doubt that in recent weeks. I, I don't, there's no proof at this point that one was done. But, you know, I go back to the Joy Watkins case where there was an issue of why didn't they test a dead dog? Because it's a complicated, long, drawn out story. But in Watkins case, one of the accusations against him was he killed the victim's dog first um, and then killed another dog as like a calling card or signature move. And they had the dog's body. They brought it in to the police um, custody, whatever. And then they never determined if the kind of bullet that killed the dog was connected to the, the murder. And again, that seems strange. Like, why wouldn't you do an autopsy of the dog there? Like, you, you should do one. I mean, that's, that's why it's important. That's why it was taken to evidence. And what we found out months and months and months later on Surprise, the GBI did autopsy the dog. The bullet was was extracted. Um, they determined it was a caliber that did not match the murder. It was all hidden under a fake case number. Mm. So. So, I mean, if you're drawing the parallel, we have not uncovered any reports of an autopsy anywhere. We have not. And in the trial, the testimony is that there was not an autopsy done. But what you're saying is that there may have been one and those reports have been lost it's very possible especially since we know for a fact that this has happened before where the gbi did an autopsy and then hit it under a fake case number so we have no no evidence that's what occurred here beyond the questions that were raised but i i don't rule it out either and i would love to know if somewhere in the gbi's files there's a record of an autopsy that did not support the conclusions that battle wanted to have drawn what it does mean though the record that we've been left with is even worse than we thought Originally, um, we thought we had some photos of a gunshot wound that, while blurry, maybe could help us draw some conclusions about what happened to Brian Bowling. And we now know that we don't even have that. Those photos we have, they were post-embalming, and the wound had been substantially altered before the, the photographs were taken. And they're basically worthless in terms of forensic evidence. Yeah, because there's no way of knowing what the wound looked like before it was treated. Yeah, it, I mean, the photos are are bad too, so it's hard to see what's going on, but it looks like there's been, there's definitely been like trimming and cutting away and cleaning up and leveling off, um, basically preparing Brian's body so cosmetics can be used and putty can be used to make him presentable for the viewing. And it looks as if it's possible there was also tearing, like a stellate tear around the wound, which is the reason why Byrne says he was convinced it was not self-inflicted. Even though that wouldn't necessarily mean that it, it hadn't been a contact shot, um, the photos he has don't prove that there was no tearing at all because that would have been fixed before that photo was taken. One thing we do still have a record of, though, from the the CAT scan that was taken of Brian in the hospital has to do with the angle of the shot. 
And that's one thing that's been cited by a couple of experts as being potentially anomalous or potentially not consistent with self-inflicted wound um, because the angle from front to back is greater than they'd expect. And that's not affected by the embalming, obviously. That comes from before he was um, dead. But one thing we realized, and Jacinda, you and I like texted back photos of us holding like fake guns to our head <laughs> one night, like showing the angles of how it goes. But like what Kane's story described to me about how Brian did this is that he was holding the gun, in Kane's words, gangster style, which she explained meant that the the butt of the gun was not pointed towards the floor. It was pointed like towards the wall. And if you are holding like a like a fake gun and you mimic that motion, you can see that the angle that would result in matches pretty much exactly with what's shown in the CAT scan. And let's just be clear, no one should try putting a gun to their A fake gun, though. A cap gun. (laughs) Not even a cap gun. Well, not a cap gun. I had a little, uh, like a (laughs) Nerf gun. I I think mine was a water gun. Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess the way the gun was held would change the angle of how the bullet entered Um, Brian's brain, but we also talked to an expert who said he had seen various angles and it's not conclusive one way or the other. Yeah, it's not conclusive, but they said it was often for shots when you're not holding it quote unquote gangster style, the angle would not be quite as far back as it was in this case. But to me, it kind of validates Kane's story and that the way he describes Brian holding the gun matches exactly what we see with the angle of the shot. And that brings us uh, back to what Dominic Astorino, the embalming expert, told me about these photos. And I got to say, that was probably one of my favorite interviews I've done during the season. He, he had a lot you of interesting totally, insight. You were totally nerding out talking to him. You could tell. It, it, it was, yeah, he, I mean, he's seen a, a lot of complicated cases, not from a medical point of view, but in terms of like reconstructing, like that's literally his job is to figure out what happened and put stuff back together again. And that gave him some good insight about, first of all, what happened here to Brian's case and like what could be shown from the records we do have. Again, not much. But one thing that the other experts we talked to were all baffled by was the, what I'm going to call the false stippling. Um, around the gunshot wound to Brian's head, there's these little pink dots, sort of in a circular pattern. And these dots kind of look like what's called stippling, which is what happens when you have a, a gun shot that's not a contact shot, but it's not a distance shot either, like an intermediate shot. They aren't stippling. Um, and I know the experts we talked to were all like, I, I don't know what to make of that, but like, it's just not stippling or it was confusing. And Dominic Estorino looked at it and he's like, oh, I think I know what that is. Yeah, you can see sort of the, the pinkish, like circling the wound, like little dots. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were asking about a completely different picture. If you want my my opinion, it's that's caused by the whatever metal, like the tweezers or the hemostats they used when they were packing the wound with cotton and the hemostats scraped against the skin. Because any sort of uh, scrape or abrasion on skin after death or especially after embalming, it's not going to bleed because the heart's not pumping. So you're not going to be able to tell you, Nick, like if you give someone razor burn, Oh. It's not going to show up until after the tissue dehydrates and then it, it's magnified like that. So if you picture that rod going in there, I know it's, it was put in the other side, but pretend it's going in this way yeah. and you're using like long metal tweezers to pack the wound with cotton and the bottom finger of your tweezers is scraping on the skin as it gets close to the wound. It would look like that. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the medical examiner and the ballistics guy, was, they were very confused. They're like, it's not, it's not stippling. I mean, he has such a unique understanding and perspective on this issue. I and mean, it's sort of fascinating that you found him and he was willing to talk about all this stuff. It's just probably the only person in the world who has a theory of what might really have happened. And one other thing that Astorino uh, was able to address was an issue with Craig Barnes' story about the hardening compound. Um, there was no hardening compound. That was not something that, that was used at all. But before we realized that, I was asking, talking to Craig Barnes, and I asked him because I, I had some understanding of how the hardening compound was supposed to have worked. And it didn't make sense to me because the pictures that he took show a rod going through Brian's head. But here's what he had to say. If there was hardening compound in the wound, would a rod be able to go through the head? You could put a rod through the hardening compound, yes. So I asked Astrina about this, and here's what he told me. If you put the hardening compound in, could you have gotten a rod through still? You would have had to break the hardening hardening compound sets up like plaster. So you would you would have to literally like break through it to get the rod through. Yeah, no embalmer would want to do that because they've already done all their work. So what does this all mean now that we know the family was billed for an autopsy that there's no records of it ever happening? The Harding compound wasn't what it was. Brian was actually embalmed before the photos were taken. Like, what legal significance does this have for Lee and Kane? Well, that will be for Lee's attorneys to determine. The Georgia Innocence Project will be investigating this case as well and looking for um, anything that he used to sort of get Lee's case back into court. Um, and kind of the tragedy of these cases is that often, except maybe in DNA cases, proving innocence doesn't really get you that far. I mean, it's often so much better to have a technicality than it is to have proof of innocence. Because the right technicality that fits the right fact pattern in existing case law, that can be used to get a conviction overturned. But like overwhelming proof of innocence by itself, not so much. I do think there's reason to be hopeful here and that Lee's attorneys will likely have a very strong case they can put together for a post-conviction proceeding. But there's nothing certain about this one way or the other. It's very much a work in progress and it'll be up to the courts to determine what significance or what relevance any of his possible claims may have. So we have a question from Paula at Lairkeeper on Twitter, and she writes, have you spoken with the family of Brian Bowling since the podcast has aired? Have their thoughts on the case changed with the new information? If you tune into Monday's episode, you will find out what Brian's family thinks about the podcast and what they think about the case. And two members of Brian's family and Lee's father actually sit down face to face in the episode on Monday. It's just, it's an incredible moment. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be there with Jacinda and Susan for it. And I think that most people will be moved by what they see and hear. And um, there will also be video to go along with it that will be posted on the YouTube channel because we filmed it. Yeah, it was a powerful moment to see Brian's family and Lee's dad, Glenn, meet for the very first time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Proof Sidebar. If you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can find me on Twitter at TheViewFromLL2 and on Instagram at SOOSimp. 
And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too, at Jacinda Proof.